Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters is the best sports bar in Navy Yard, located just across the street from Nationals Park. Also a great place to check out if you're headed to Audi Field. Make sure to check out their self-pour beer wall and unlimited TVs. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Set and now the pitch, breaking ball, hit in the air to deep left center. Dickerson's back, looking, going, going, gone, goodbye. Xander Bogarts has blasted his eighth home run of the year. It is a three-run home run, and this has turned into a huge fifth inning for the Padres. Six runs across, it's now San Diego seven and Washington nothing. Ward delivers, swing, and a drive hit well to right field. This is way back. This ball is gone. Goodbye. It's a two-run homer for Juan Soto. Three runs batted in tonight. He has 40 for the year. And the Padres are just pouring it on. It's now San Diego 13 and Washington 1. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, June 24th, 2023, along with MadisonSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Petco Park in San Diego. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, the good news is that the Nats late night on Friday night hit seven doubles. The Nats totaled 10 hits. Eight of the hits were extra base hits and seven of the hits were doubles. That was nice, but bad news is that the Nats late night on Friday night got uh, smashed, shall we say. A 13-3 loss at the San Diego Padres in game one of a three-game series. The Nats now have lost 18 of their last 23 games. The Nats now are a National League worst 28-47, and and the Nats have the second-worst run differential in the NL at minus 71. So, Mark, when the Nats were going, you know, relatively well, one of the things we noted was that even the losses were close. You look at this stretch of 18 losses in 23 games, and granted, I'm cherry-picking here, but the losses include final scores of 6-1, 9-3, 11-3, 10-5, 6-1 again, 9-3, and now 13-3. We are getting back into that uh, oh-so-familiar territory of uh, not just losses, but blowout losses. Yeah, and that it's the most discouraging part of this. I think if you had told everyone, hey, this team's still going to lose 90 plus games, but they're going to be a lot more competitive. You know, there'd be reasons for optimism, young guys playing well. Everyone would probably take that. And that's pretty much what we had through most of the first two months of the season. There was, I thought, real reason to be optimistic about the direction that things were headed and to feel like 
the worst of this had gone by, that we were not going to be dealing with truly the worst parts of a rebuild. And the last three weeks or so, it has cratered again. And this feels like last year, not in a good way. And barring some kind of major turnaround here over the rest of this West Coast trip, June of 2023 is going to go down as one of the worst months they've had here in franchise history and probably close to as bad as anything we dealt with the last couple of years. And that is a very discouraging thought because it really did feel like things were on the uptick there for a while. And instead, it has taken a sharp turn back downward. So we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of the Nats announcing the exercising of the 2023 contract options for Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez. Uh, That was July 2nd, 2022. We know that each guy, once again, is in the final season of a contract. As For the last few years now, we've sort of danced this dance of Mike and Davey, Davey and Mike. What's going to happen? I don't think Davey Martinez is why this is happening, but the team is reeling right now. Davey's not under contract for next season. We saw a frustrated and fatigued Davey, certainly after the Nats' previous game, that game in which he got ejected. Do you think Davey getting fired here is at all a possibility, or do you not anticipate that at all being a possibility? I haven't seen any evidence of that in the makings. That doesn't mean that it can't happen, as we've seen over the years. Just because you sense something about how a clubhouse feels about the manager doesn't necessarily mean that's what ownership is ultimately going to do. And ownership has been completely persona non grata once again this year. So it's hard to have any sense of what anybody there is thinking. But I was thinking this to myself as I was standing outside the clubhouse waiting for it to open up after this game. If you just take this in a vacuum and say you have a manager in the final year of their contract and a team has lost 15 of 18 this month, as they have, and they've played the way that they have, whether you're rebuilding or not, there would be serious questions about a hot seat for the manager. Now, the situation here, as we've been talking about for over a year now, is kind of strange because we don't really know what's happening at the top of the organization and where this is going beyond this year. Are the learners still going to be in charge or not? Is the GM Mike Rizzo still going to be in charge or not? And so it's kind of like, how are you supposed to answer the questions below that? Are you going to make some kind of change on the managerial side of things if you don't even know if you're owning the team come this time next year? And so I I think that complicates it all. And it probably just puts everybody in this holding pattern for better or worse. And to say, well, we're just going to ride this out for the year. And at the end of the year, if the learners still own the team, then they'll make a decision on how to proceed with both Rizzo and Martinez. If they're not going to own the team at that point, then whoever is in charge is going to decide what to do. I've been wondering all along, would this ever come to a head or not? And it doesn't seem like from my perspective that there's any increased pressure or feeling that they have to make any decisions about those kind of things right now. It seems like they're just going to let this thing ride out. And whenever it's all said and done later this year, they'll decide how they want to proceed, which in its own way is a pretty frustrating position to be in because I think most franchises in this spot, you would want to have some clarity and just decide where are the issues? What are we trying to do to get better or not? Are the people in charge, the right people to continue to do it or not? It feels like everybody's just kind of hanging on in limbo and waiting to see how the rest of the year plays out. 
It's a bad team. I think the idea that a different manager would be getting appreciably different results, I mean, I just think that that's kind of silly. Like, the talent isn't good. The team isn't good. That doesn't mean, though, that Davey's doing a great job. That doesn't mean that guys are developing as they should. And to your point, if you just look at this, the team is reeling right now. The losses are getting uglier. The manager seemed to reach a breaking point or at least a boiling point in the previous game. Like, all of those things usually are signs of, yeah, you know what, a change may be coming. And what happens a lot of the time is a guy gets fired and you look back on it and you say, you know, we probably should have seen that coming. And so just in thinking about this, I mean, again, last year of his contract, it was around this time last year that his fate for 2023 was decided, although there was a deadline that year to exercise the option. So that played into the timing of the exercising of the option last year. But yeah, it's such a strange situation. It's such a bizarre situation. And the Nats right now are in a bad way. And Patrick Corbin on Friday night was in a bad way. I mean, what we saw late night on Friday night was 2021-2022 Patrick Corbin. He got rocked. He allowed seven runs in five innings. He gave him seven hits, two homers, and five singles. He issued three walks and a hit by pitch. Had just three strikeouts. He threw 91 pitches, 52 strikes versus 39 balls. Now, over the first four innings, he allowed just one run. He, in the bottom of the first, allowed a leadoff homer by Ha Sung Kim to center field for a one nothing Padres lead. But then Corbin unraveled something fierce. I mean, this was brutal. What ended up being a six-run Padres fifth as Corbin, in facing a good chunk of the Padres lineup for a third time, got rocked. Uh, he, in the inning, allowed six runs on a homer, two singles, two walks, a hit-by-pitch, and a crucial pass ball. Uh, gave up a leadoff opposite field infield single by Jake Cronenworth on a grounder that shortstop C.J. Abrams failed to field cleanly in an attempted backhanded catch. Then Corbin issued a one-out hit-by-pitch of the Padres' number nine batter, our old pal Trent Grisham. Then came the pass ball. Uh, catcher K-Bert Ruiz, a one-out pass ball, advancing Cronenworth to third and Grisham to second. Then came a one-out two-run single by Ha Sung Kim to center field for a 3-0 Padres lead. Then came back-to-back one-out walks, the first of which was of Fernando Tatis Jr., despite him having been down at 1.02. Then came a one-out walk of Juan Soto to load the bases, despite him having been down at 1.12. Then came actually a really impressive play, a one-out RBI fielder's choice grounder by Manny Machado. Luis Garcia on this play, what a job. He made a running backhanded catch of a grounder up the middle, and then in like one motion with his glove, flipped the ball to Abrams for the force out at second base. So did want to give Garcia credit for that. Swung on, grounder up the middle, chased by Garcia, tried a glove flip to Abrams, and he did it. He got the out at second. Then came the big blow, Corbin giving up a two-out, three-run homer by Xander Bogarts to left center for a 7 nothing. Padres lead. And just like that, the game went from competitive and close to a route. So the one thing that we've talked about all year long, if you could point to Patrick Corbin and say, what's been different this year? It was the fact that he was at minimum giving his team a chance. Pretty much every time takes him out. Doesn't mean he'd been good, but he was giving you at least five, if not six innings. He was keeping it to four runs or less. Very often, three runs or less. And yeah, that's a low bar to set, but given where he has come from, that's where the bar needed to be. And as long as he's giving you a chance, well, you can live with it. This is the first time in a while he's just not given them a chance. And that inning, like you said, there were so many points along the way. You just make one more quality pitch. You can get out of that inning and keep it at a relatively modest deficit. It's three, nothing, maybe even four, nothing. 
and he just could not do that. Now, some of it was a little out of his control. That pass ball by Cabert Ruiz was costly. And I know in the end, you say, well, you know, that's one extra base in an inning that spiraled out of control and had six runs scored. Yeah, but it put two in scoring position. Now, it happened on an attempted bunt where Ha Sung Kim squared around, didn't make contact with the ball, and the ball wound up going off of Ruiz's glove and skipping all the way to the backstop. I asked Cabert about that. He said he just never saw it, that Kim in squaring around kind of blocked his view, and so he never got a good view of it. So, okay, weird thing. It happens sometimes. But let's be honest here. Cabert Ruiz has had some issues behind the plate. It has not been very clean for him, certainly of late and really overall for the season, whether it comes to throwing out runners, whether it comes to framing, whether it comes to blocking pitches, or in this case, it goes down as a pass ball. It, it was not the pitcher's fault. It was the catcher's fault for not catching that. So you follow that up and then say, okay, well, Corbin, can you make that one other pitch and get out of that? Make all that stuff moot and not matter. And what's he do? Immediately, the very next pitch, two-run single. Then what's he do from there? Back-to-back walks. Finally, a chance to get out of the inning with two outs. What does he do? Leaves a change up right over the plate to Xander Bogarts. So it's this continued issue of Patrick Corbin not able to put away hitters. When the moment comes, can he make the pitch that gets himself out of a jam and not have to rely on his defense behind him to do it for him? And that's the biggest difference between 2019 and now. He just does not have that in him. And so on a night like this, it all fell apart and it turned into his probably worst start of the season. Yeah, the numbers are back to being really ugly. Corbin now 16 starts, ERA of 532, a whip of 161. And, you know, speaking of ugly numbers, I don't know how many people know this. Cabert Ruiz came into Friday with a negative war per fan graphs for this season. He has been a below replacement level player if you go by fan graphs. That's not the case if you go by the baseball reference war, but like, you know, you can preach patience with a guy and you can sort of provide caveats to, well, he's doing this, he's doing that, but like, that's not what's supposed to be. Cabert Ruiz having a negative war this deep into the season. Now, regarding Corbin, we also had this during the day on Friday. And you always got to be careful with stuff like this. But MOB insider Andy Martino of SNY, in a piece that came out on Friday morning, wrote of a possible trade between the Nats and the Mets involving Corbin and or starting pitcher Trevor Williams. Now, we know the Mets are not doing well. They, in fact, traded Eduardo Escobar on Friday. So the notion of the Mets being buyers may be a fading thought, you know, anyway. But wrote Martino, quote, in conversations with league sources, Corbin's name was the most frequently linked to the Mets. Washington owes Corbin $24.4 million this season and a stunning $35.4 $35.4 million in 2024. The Mets could offer to pay all of that in exchange for a reliever like Hunter Harvey, CJ Edwards, or Kyle Finnegan, end quote. Putting aside the Mets specifically, if you're looking at the rebuild, do you think the Nats would be inclined to cash in a trade ship like, say, a Harvey or a Finnegan, to whatever degrees those guys are trade ships, in order to shed Corbin's salary? Or do you think the Nats would be more apt to cash in a trade ship, more to get back a prospect and just continue to eat the Corbin contract? Yeah, I think at this point, if you're the Nationals, they're not trying to shed money. I mean, their payroll is $100 million essentially this year, and 60% of that is Corbin and Strasburg, who we know obviously is not pitching. So it, to me, in the sense I, I get from them is if they are going to move anybody, You're doing it because you're getting somebody in return who may help you down the road be a part of a winning team. 
So unless there's this idea, and again, with the ownership question, who knows the answer to this, unless there's there's this idea of, hey, we're going to go spend big this winter. And so if we can clear anything we can off the books now, that gives us money to spend on a big name guy come this winter, then I can maybe see it. But how could we know or how could anybody know that that's in the works at the moment? So not to say they wouldn't include Corbin in a trade, because if somebody's willing to do that, then of course they're going to listen to that offer. But I don't think shedding his salary would be the motivator for something like that. You want to get something in return, even if it's a you know single A, double A prospects, but somebody who could maybe make a difference for you in the coming years. I don't think that they're not in a, a fire sale kind of situation. They're not trying to shed every ounce of payroll that they have. Their payroll is already well down and they have very little committed in the long term beyond Strasburg. So I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is getting more young players who can be part of a winning team here in a couple of years. Unless, I mean, if you're the learners and you're checked out and you just want to not pay as much money as you have to pay, would you do that? You know, would you try to cut costs even more just because you don't feel like paying Corbin when you know you're about to sell the team? I mean, maybe so, but let's also look at this from the Mets perspective. Let's say they're the team that was doing that. Is Kyle Finnegan or Hunter Harvey worth that much to you that you're going to take on what, approaching $50 million? Patrick Corbin to do that? Like, isn't there somebody else you can get for for a lot less than that could, that can help you in your bullpen? Yeah. I mean, but let's say it's Candelario. I mean, I, I don't think we have to, I don't think it's about the specifics. I think it's more just like, do you use a trade chip to shed money? I, I agree with you. Look, from a baseball ops standpoint, I don't think it makes much sense. And I'm not really into like trying to save the learners money. I just wonder with them, you know, it is such a strange situation. We have this ownership limbo. Nobody knows where it's going. The team clearly isn't spending money. If you're going to sell the team, would you not be perhaps encouraged or wanting to spend even less on the team, especially for a guy in Corbin who's not doing well? But yeah, I, I mean, and again, with the Mets specifically, they're fading. So I, I don't even know why they would be buyers at this point. There is some logic behind what you're saying. And if that is ultimately ownership's motivation, which is not a good thing for the fans, by the way, if that's what their motivation is. Now, I could turn that on the flip side and say this. I could see the Nationals being willing to trade Corbin and pay down a lot of his salary if it meant they were getting a prospect in return, that would make a lot more sense to me. Now, is that going to happen? I don't think there's a whole lot of hope of that. And by the way, you know, when Patrick Corbin's giving up seven runs in five innings, that's not doing anything to help make anybody else be interested in acquiring him. Carl Edwards is on the IL right now and is shut down for at least a little while. And Kyle Finnegan and Hunter Harvey, you know, have been good at times, like we've talked about, very inconsistent. So, I don't know there are a whole lot of trade chips right now from the Nationals' perspective that are going to bring you back a whole lot. So I, it's fun to think about these possibilities, but I'm not sure anybody is performing in a way that would make them be so coveted at the moment. Right before the end of the Nats season in late September, Bruce Springsteen is coming to Nationals Park. If you're trying to find tickets to the concert, check out the Game Time app. Buying tickets to your favorite events shouldn't be stressful. Game time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all the sports, music, comedy, and theater near you. It's the fastest growing ticketing app in the country for a reason. Get images of your seat before you buy so you know exactly what to expect when you arrive. Snag the tickets without the stress with Game Time. Download the Game Time app, create an account, and use code NATSCHAT for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. 
Again, create an account and redeem code NATSCHAT for $20 off. Download game time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. Hey, are you a law firm partner stuck on an underperforming team while the rest of the competitors are spending big and winning big? Well, unlike Mackenzie Gore and Kate Ruiz, you have options. You don't have to stay on your 60-win team. NatChat sponsor Mason Kalfis and his team specialize in placing partners and associates at medium-sized and large law firms in Washington, D.C. and across the country. Mason Kalfas has recruiters in six states and has placed lawyers in more than half of the 100 largest law firms in the United States. While you may be reading doom and gloom from the legal press, many practices are red-hot antitrust, IP litigation, white-collar litigation, finance and direct lending, and healthcare. Because you are not under a CBA or team control for six years, in fact, staying at a firm too long is often a recipe for being underpaid. Explore your options today with Mason Kalfas. Call Mason today at 202-486-3535. That number again, 202-486-3535. Hey, Natch Chat listeners, here to tell you about Bird Dogs, the world's most comfortable pants. Bird Dogs make you look good. Bird Dog shorts also do the exact same thing as Lululemon, but fit way better. They also fit better than regular shorts that are made of a stiff, restricting cotton. Go to birddogs.com slash pool and enter promo code pool that's spelled P-O-O-L for a free Yeti style tumbler with your order. That's birddogs.com slash pool for a free Yeti style tumbler. You won't want to take your bird dogs off. We promise you. Cool sets, fires. Soto laces a base in the left center field up the gap. This one's going to roll and go all the way to the fence. Heading home is Tatis, and into second with a line drive double is Juan Soto, and it's 8-1 to one, San Diego. Friday night was not a good night for the Nats bullpen. We had three Nats relievers combining to allow six runs in three innings. We did get the Nats debut of a lefty reliever, Joe LaSorsa. He made his Nats debut. He only, though, faced three batters. Bottom of the six, he faced three batters, got uh, two outs. Then we had the latest Chad Cool experience. Uh, he came into the game and really was a mess. Uh, he officially allowed four runs in one inning. He faced nine batters, got just three outs. He had a four-run seventh for the Padres, gave up two doubles, a single, a walk, and a hit by pitch. And then Thaddeus Ward allowed two runs in one and a third innings. Uh, Ward in a Padres two-run eighth, gave up a two-run home run by, yes, Juan Soto to right center for a 13-1 Padres lead. So I think the two questions I have with the bullpen off this game, A, why did LaSorsa only face three batters with the Nats down by so much? And then B, have we seen the last of Chad Cool with the Nats? I mean, this reeked of the kind of performance that gets you DFA'd. Do you think Cool is now done? So with LaSorsa, the reason for it was the fact that they may want to use him again on Saturday and maybe on Sunday. He's the only lefty in the bullpen, as we know. Davey Martinez wants to use him. I think we may see him face Juan Soto at some point before the weekend is over. It'll be fascinating to see how that all goes. So I think they want to get him in a game, certainly, but they didn't want to burn up to the extent that he would not be available again the rest of the weekend. So that's why that one happened the way that it did. In Chad Cool's case, you know, if this is anybody else, and we've seen it with others who have pitched to that level, they have not hesitated to cut ties with them. It seems like Chad Cool's in a different situation. 
whether that's for baseball reasons, whether that's for personal reasons, I don't know specifically the answer, but it kind of feels like it doesn't really seem to matter how he does, that that's not going to change things. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe something will happen here at some point. You also have to have somebody else ready to go, but you can't tell me that there isn't anybody in the organization that can't provide them with at least an eight ERA out of the bullpen, which is what he has. And I think that the hardest part of it is this. You're down. This game is essentially over. The Padres are swinging at everything at this point. You just want to get through this game. You bring him in now and you're asking him just to finish the game out so you don't burn anybody else out. And instead, he throws 30 pitches and gets three outs and you have to make another change. And then Thaddeus Ward is no better and he needs 29 pitches to record three outs. So now both of them, in addition to you needed two guys to get through the final six outs of a blowout game, but they're probably both unavailable the next day because of how many pitches they had to throw just to get that far. This is not accomplishing much in either case, but certainly in Cool's case, I'm not quite sure where the upside is. What is it that you're hoping he can do or become for you that he just has not been this year? If it was, hey, at least he's given us innings in blowout games, that there's some value in that, but he's not even able to do that. So I don't know where they go from here. I don't get the sense. It doesn't feel like there's a lot that he can do that would cause them to make a change. But at some point, the stats are what the stats are, and you feel awful for him and for his family and the situation that they are in. But at some point, you do have to perform in this league, and he has not come close to doing that. I mean, I would hope that the personal situation, his wife having breast cancer, isn't what's keeping him on the team. I mean, first of all, no reasonable person would look at the Nats and say, you can't cut him because his wife has cancer. Like One thing has nothing to do with the other. We can all have sympathy and compassion for the cool family and at the same time, you know, separate the personal from the professional. But the other thing is, I almost feel like it's insulting to keep cool on the team for a reason having to do with like, say his wife. And, and I mean, insulting to cool, you know, like if you're a professional, you don't want to be treated like that. You don't want to be, you know, babied like that. Like you want to be handled like, you know, a professional athlete. I feel like that's almost a disservice to Chad cool. If you keep him on the team for a reason other than him deserving to be on the team. Now, like you said, maybe they don't have any other better option. Although like, you know, I bring up our guy, Paolo Espino. Why can't he be pitching in the role that Chad Cool is pitching in right now? But yeah, specific to the issue with his wife, like, I think we're past the point of like, if you DFA him, that's insulting or anything like that. Like, no. And, and I don't think anyone would really take it that way. The numbers are what they are, like you said. And this performance on Friday night was rough. I mean, you almost felt sorry for the guy out there. Like, he's not in a good place. And maybe what's happening with his wife is part of why. You know, maybe he's having a hard time concentrating and doing his job. And I think we all would understand that. But if you're the Nats, I don't think that means that you have to keep having him on your major league roster. No. And, you know, I look at others on team, Erasmo Ramirez, who was so valuable for them last year, team's pitcher of the year and, and deserved it based on what he did for them. Really struggled this year and they cut him loose. He was statistically better than Chad Cool, and they didn't waste any time in DFAing him. And now he's trying to catch on with the Rays on a minor league deal. So it feels like to this point, there's been a different standard in Chad Cool's case. And we can try to interpret what the reasons would be or what the differences would be there. It just, it doesn't seem to be doing anybody any good to keep putting him out there like this when the same results 
are happening. And, and again, if, if he's eating up innings, if, if there's some value to what he's doing, maybe you justify it, but he's not even doing that right now. Now, maybe there's an injury, maybe there's something they can come up with a way to keep him in the organization and not have to sever ties altogether. But I've got to believe that somebody else in the organization can provide better than what he is providing them right now. Yeah, I mean, they've done the injury thing. So, I mean, they can do it again, I guess, but the numbers are brutal. 16 games, five starts, ERA of 845, a whip now of 196. Well, I mentioned this at the top of the show. So the Nats got routed on Friday night, 13-3, but actually ended up having one of their best games of the season from a power standpoint, from an extra base hitting standpoint. Now, the Nats did score two meaningless runs in the top of the ninth, but the team for the game, 10 hits, eight of which were extra base hits, including seven doubles. This actually was pretty remarkable watching the game. How many doubles the Nats kept hitting? Yeah, some of that I think may have been the um, cool San Diego air that was keeping balls in the yard because they hit some balls really well. CJ Abrams, based on his reaction, seemed to think he hit that one out in the ninth and it wound up not being caught by Tatis at the wall. And so he ends up with a double because of it. So I think some of it is that I think from the sixth inning on, there was a lot of free swinging. There was a lot of first pitch swinging by everybody on both sides, may have had a little bit of something to do with it. I understand when you look at the total numbers, you say, hey, they had a good night offensively. They did not have a good night offensively. They did nothing against Joe Musgrove. And the stat that stood out to me was this. I I looked this one up because it feels like this has certainly been a trend. This was the eighth time this year that an opposing starter has gone at least seven innings against the Nationals and thrown fewer than 100 pitches. And it's now happened four times in the last 11 days. I think that tells you a lot about what's going on here. Guys are not working at bats. They are not drawing walks like we've talked about. They are chasing pitches out of the zone. They are making quick outs. They are not making opposing starters work. Some of these are good starters. Joe Musgrove's a good pitcher, of course. But there are things you can do as a hitter to make life a little bit tougher on him. And I think we are really seeing right now overall some poor quality at bats, and it does have an effect. If the whole idea, your best chance against another team is to get their starter out of the game and get to their worst relievers, they are now coming anywhere close to doing that because they are letting these starters go six or seven on low pitch counts and then go to their best relievers. That's something I think has got to change. I think the approach has really, really slipped here. They're barely averaging one walk per game this month. And like I said, pitchers are completing seven innings on them and not even needing 100 pitches to do that. Yeah, zero walks for the Nats on Friday night and Padres pitchers for the game threw 40 fewer pitches than Nats pitchers threw in the game. And that obviously tells you a lot. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. Check out our new website too, NatsChatPodcast.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. Uh, A thank you to Tim Newmark for the music of the Nats Chat Podcast. Visit TimNewmark.com. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Willingham pumps it in there. Swing to ground ball toward the middle. Second baseman, Knoll, backhands it on the shortstop side of second. Tough throw to first is in time for the out. Good play for Jake Knoll over on the shortstop side of second. Side retired 1-2-3, and we'll head to the bottom of the eighth with the Wings 
Still needing to do some work, trailing Omaha 4-1 on Fox Sports 1280. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.